people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 54. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Peter Harms, professor of management at the University of Alabama's Culver House College of Business, to talk about attachment styles in the workplace. This has been one of Peter's primary areas of research for more than a decade, and is something that often gets overlooked by organizational psychologists. However, there is significant evidence that attachment styles can have a significant impact on major organizational outcomes. So with that, Peter, is there anything else you would like the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? Um, just a Canadian guy living in Alabama and uh, studying personality and leadership. And uh, I'd like to thank you guys for having me on. Well, thanks so much for coming back on, Peter. Uh, for our audience who doesn't remember, Peter ha has been on a prior episode, but uh, and in that episode, we talk about some of, of Peter's accolades. Uh, Peter has since then uh, been promoted to a full professor, as Blake mentioned in the introduction, uh, in, the, in the management uh, uh, school there in Alabama, uh, or the business schools uh, in the management department at Alabama. Um one of the things that I think is most impressive about Peter is his unbelievable citation count. Um, he has a, I've mentioned in, I think in our previous episode, I mentioned his H index, which basically means how many articles does he have that are cited at least that many times? And it's over 50, which is really impressive. He's got more than almost now, probably if we got a more up-to-date count, 15,000 citations uh, of his work. Peter works in a whole variety of areas. He's done really, um, well-recognized work on personnel selection, on narcissism, on leadership and personality, bad behavior in the workplace. Uh, he, he did our episode on the dark side of personality, which I think Blake will say something about here momentarily. But uh, thanks so much for coming on, Peter. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you. And yeah, to our listeners, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, we... I, I look at the analytics of this podcast all the time, and I can tell you that Peter's episode on the dark side of personality is the most popular episode in this podcast just over two-year history. So congratulations, Peter. You're our, you're our, our rock star as far as uh, podcast downloads are concerned. Well, they say bad is stronger than good, so I guess that has something to do with this. <laughs> well, as always, I think we see it in just about any medium, uh, any any time that we're talking about the dark side, whether it be written, uh, audio, video, whatever it might be, that tends to, to really jump out at people. And it's, it's something that uh, people find fascinating. And uh, quite frankly, I think I do as well, and I think everybody who's uh, understands what that means, um, or even if they don't understand what that means, it's something that stands out and is of interest to people. So uh, glad you were able to come on and talk to us about that, but we knew at that point that we needed to bring you on again. So here we are. So let's dive into this. Um, you know, Peter, prior to doing my homework for this episode, I was largely unfamiliar with the topic of attachment styles and attachment theory, which I, I learned was a thing in doing my homework. So before we get to the meat of the episode, would you mind giving our listeners a general overview of attachment theory? Yeah. You know, Blake, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, I actually really started doing attachment theory research, uh, mostly because I actually transitioned into organizational psychology from the study of personality psychology, where attachment theory is is one of the grand theories. It's like the big five. It's something everyone knows about. Um, but in workplace settings, hardly anyone talks about it. And I just happened to be 
at PSYOP one year and was, you know, sort of being a loud mouth and going like, why does no one do this? This is a really important topic. And and uh, one of my colleagues, Pam Paraway from Florida State, she's like, rather than talk big, why don't you actually like do <laughs> what you're saying and actually like teach people about it? And that's actually where my first paper came from. She uh, commissioned that for uh, the journal uh, Human Resource Management Review and um, started putting that together. And subsequent to that, I've really gotten sort of interested in this. But I uh, asked, what, what is attachment theory? So uh, attachment theory is considered a grand theory in personality psychology because it's one of these uh, things that's supposed to explain everything. Uh, your childhood, your adulthood, your uh, relationships, your work, your reactions to death, your religiosity, your health behaviors. Uh, everything it sh it should be involved in that, and where it comes from it's it's you know uh, almost a hundred years ago um, a guy named John Bowlby was a, a clinical professor, and he was working with a bunch of maladjusted uh, children, and one thing he kind of discovered about all of them was that basically every kid he was working with that had uh, sort of emotional problems had uh, experiences with uh, generally their like poor experiences with their their mothers generally, but their parents sort of in general where um, they had been separated from their parents. They didn't have a good relationship with their parents. And he started digging into this. And Bowlby was a really sort of eclectic guy. And if you read his books, which are, are just amazing pieces of, of literature, um, he starts looking at not just like how humans develop and, and this is coming from the, the era of like psychodynamic theory where people were really interested in how your childhood experiences would affect how you were as an adult. Uh, but Bowlby went beyond that where he starts looking at similarities between uh, humans and animals and he brings in a real evolutionary bent and he comes up with this idea that for most species when you're born, you're just, you're very vulnerable and, and it's a bad thing to be vulnerable because, um, you know, predators will eat you. And so you need your, your parents to protect you and to watch over you. Uh, and so he talks about this as sort of a safe haven and the need to maintain proximity with your caregivers, but how can you get your, your adult parent to want to look after you? Well, you can do it a couple ways. One is by being really, really cute. Uh, that they want to be around you. So if you look at, you know, we think babies are really, really cute and they are, but so are kittens and so are puppies. And it turns out that like dogs and cats and, and most animals, they think their babies are cute as well. So that we find, you know, uh, adults find them uh, attractive. They want to be around them. They, they fall in love with them. They want to sacrifice for them. Um, but should the, the parent wander away um, Bulby also suggested that, that babies do certain things to bring, uh, the parent back. And, and this can be kind of a little bit dangerous, but like they'll cry and they'll get upset. And so when the parent leaves them, they'll, they'll get, become very distressed and they'll do that to sort of remind the parent, Hey, 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 I'm here and you love me and you're supposed to take care of me. And, and that can make them more vulnerable because of course, predators can hear you crying as well. Um, but in general, this works. And the, the babies who are more successful at keeping their parents around and keeping their parents engaged, uh, they will go on to, um, you know, to live longer and reproduce and things like that. And so uh, the attachment theory is basically sort of centered around this idea that we want proximity to other people, to caring people to take care of us, and that when we're separated from others, uh, we'll become distressed and, and we'll call out. And this starts in childhood, but uh, as I think we'll get into later, the experiences we have with childhood at how responsive your parents are can translate into how you understand um, relationships as an adult as well. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting uh, here, Peter, about this theory and, and sort of sort of in broader context with the, the podcast in general, we, recently we had... Uh, a guest on who talked about genetics and, and and where personality comes from. And this is the kind of question we get all the time is, is, you know, what are the roots of personality? Where does personality come from? 
And you know, this is uh, you know a very different answer to the question. Uh, this says, look, that this psychodynamic perspective uh, says that there are things that happen in our childhood, right? Versus say a uh, you know a, a really genetically informed perspective would just say, well, it's you know mostly genes, and then we have a bunch of stuff we don't really understand after that. Whereas this perspective really says, no, no, there's things that happen in your childhood, and those things affect uh, the way that you think about the world, the way that you feel about the world and uh, project into your personality throughout childhood. And then, as, as you mentioned, we'll, we'll talk about later, all the way through your adult life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and that's the thing is like these childhood experiences, you know, we'll get into like the different sort of lessons you can take from this. But uh, fundamentally, this theory has to do with sort of interpersonal relationships. And we know that we're social creatures. We live in an interpersonal world. And so it has to do with your willingness to trust, to engage in other people, um, and your, you know, capacity to love and, and receive love. And so, uh, it's, it's really, really important. And, and a lot of times I think because organizational researchers sort of ignore it because they're like, well, I'm not really worried about babies and childhood experiences, and there's nothing I can do about that as an organization. And some of these topics are, you know, it's a little uncomfortable because we're not telling each other to, you know, um, soothe each other in the workplace always. And, uh, but, you know, my, my very early research, even when I was just doing trait research, we actually looked at um, childhood personality, like the, the personalities of three and five-year-olds. And we're able to show that um, your, your temperament as a child influenced your employee behaviors 20 years down the road. And so um, it's maybe not something that organizations can do much about, but it's definitely something that's real. Yeah, I mean th- that that's totally the case. I mean, we uh god, I was involved with a, a really uh, cool project some years ago where um teachers actually had rated children. Uh, you're probably familiar with this one Peter, but teachers had rated children uh in the, in their classrooms and this was uh close to a thousand children had been rated uh by these teachers in their classrooms on a whole bunch of personality dimensions and then uh, basically, they went away and they went about their lives and nothing really happened. And then 40 years later, they contacted these children. Uh, they found them and brought lots of them back and, and actually put them in a, a, in a behavioral interview where they got interviewed about their life. And, and uh, we had uh, undergraduate students watch these, idi- these, these interviews. These were hour-long interviews. And we just had them watch the interview and code how they behaved, just, just rate how they're behaving in that interview. And what was amazing was that those teachers ratings of when they were in third grade, fourth grade predicted how those people behaved as adults so many years later. So that does suggest that of course, you know, there's this genetic effect, but nonetheless that there's something, you know, very consistent about personality over time. And this is really why personality assessments work is because of these kinds of things. But this, this point about attachment theory, I think is, is a really interesting one that organizations do miss because, you know, sometimes we're, it can can be a little uncomfortable to ask people about their childhood. You know, what was it like, you know, to, to grow up where you grew up and, and maybe some people find these questions to be sensitive, right? Particularly if you had uh, a very difficult childhood, it may be uncomfortable to talk about those kinds of questions, but it does seem to have an impact on, as we said, how you view the world, how you feel about the world, uh, and, and the choices you make. Well, I mean, this also, I mean, while we're on the subject, it, it makes me think of, um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber for, for those who aren't familiar, um, you know, I've, I've heard stories about and, and read into it a little bit where he, as a just a very, very young child, he actually had a severe case of hives, I believe, where he was forced into isolation by uh, medical officials um, for an extended amount of time at a very, very, very young age where his parents were unable to see him for and be around him and nurture him for I mean, I don't know the exact amount of time, but a very extended amount of time. And there are people who suggest that that could have had a major or played a major role in, you know, how he progressed into adulthood and um, 
we saw how that turned out. Hmm. But Peter, so well, well, oh, I, ahead, I do Brian. think I would just want to jump in. I think we have to, you know, that that may be the case, you know, in his particular case. But I think nonetheless, we have to be careful. I mean, there's lots of people who, you know, were raised in homes with, without either parent or or just had really. Uh, challenging and difficult childhood situations where, you know, they didn't turn out to, to be uh, sort of homicidal. Um, so yeah, we have to be careful. Of, like, I yeah. don't want, I don't want any listeners to come away thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, well, be it's- let me throw this out there. And, you know, I was maybe going to save it till later, but if you look at presidential historians or even people who study great leaders in history, uh, you'll find an abnormally high rate of people who have experienced childhood trauma and particularly uh, struggles with their own parents. And so it's not that these things are necessarily going to like doom your personality. It's really in, in terms of how you interpret them and how you react to them and, you know, how you, what, what you're coping is and, uh, you know, pick, pick your favorite, um, president or whatever and and just go back and and look at like what was their relationship like with their parent and and you'll often find that there were struggles there interesting well okay so um you know that's been a good overview of attachment theory um so peter i guess my next question here is can you describe some of the more common attachment styles because i know there are are you know varying styles of attachment so you know one thing bolby did is he kind of laid out how these things would happen. But in his own theory, he really wasn't concerned about styles. And that really only um, sort of coalesced in the field of attachment studies with some um, research by Mary Ainsworth. And she did these famous studies called the strange situation studies. And what she would do is she would have mothers bring in their babies and sort of be in a doctor's office. And there were some toys and things to play with. And you know, while they would just pretend to be waiting for the doctor and, and while the mother's there, the kids would sort of, um, play with the toys or something like that, but then they would call the mother away and they would see how the child children would react. And what she kind of discovered is that different kids would react in different ways. I mean, generally they would get distressed if their mother was gone for, um, too long, um, And so they would start crying and and getting upset. And what she discovered is that when the mothers would return, there were sort of um, three patterns that would would come up. There were babies that would, or infants, I guess, they're not really babies, they're sort of toddlers, um, could go and, uh, you know, be soothed by the mother quickly, um, where they would go and hug and the mom would say, I love you or whatever. And then the kid would sort of go back to, to playing. And she called those secure types. So like when they're upset, they know that they're, they're you know, if they call, their mother will come and, um, and then they're, they're sort of soothed and they can go back to their business and they're content. Uh, there was a second type, which she called anxious, which is that they get upset and they get really upset. And even when the mother comes back and tries to reassure them, they keep just going bonkers. And they're like, you never, ever, ever, ever leave me ever again. I'm going to cry and cry and cry. And so like, they're just really, really upset all the time. And then there was sort of a third type where when the mother would return, the child would like reject them and just sort of like turn away and be like, I don't want to be soothed by you. You've betrayed me. Um, I, I don't need you anymore. And she referred to those as avoidant types. And so those end up being sort of the three types of attachment that we typically talk about. Uh, the secure people tend to be um, really good at sort of, um, you know, high trust, high intimacy. They've had good experiences with their parents. The other two types, though, are, are basically children that have learned that their parents aren't reliable when they're distressed. And so for the anxious kids, um, they basically have developed this idea that they have to be really dramatic and really extreme to get the kind of attention that they need. And they're just kind of like they lose emotional regulatory abilities and stuff like that. For the avoidant types, they've gone through all that and they've basically, you know, again, sort of been neglected to the point where they're like, no matter what I do, my parent is never going to be there for me. 
So I'm going to shut myself down. I'm going to close these emotions down. And I'm going to sort of say, the only one I can count on for myself in the entire world is me. And that ends up sort of being the, the three types. Uh, Bowlby thought that, you know, one thing I didn't mention before is, is that that secure base, knowing that your parents there, and, and he sort of took this from the, these strange situation play events is, it's only when you believe that your parents are there that you feel comfortable sort of going and exploring and doing new things in your environment. And so like after that distress situation happens, how quickly do you go back to playing and how quickly do you go back to being normal? And so he saw this as being really the root of what he called exploratory behavior. And I mean, he was talking sort of in terms of animals and stuff like that, like literally leaving the den or leaving the nest and stuff like that. But for humans, we're talking about meeting strangers, meeting new people, go, moving to a new town and stuff like that. Um, these sorts of exploratory behaviors. Um, the three types thing has been very persistent. We still talk about attachment styles in terms of the types. Um, but generally now, um, psychologists have moved from talking about types to talking about dimensions. Um, because we know that people aren't just like black and white on these things. You're not one way or you're not the other. And so they now refer to sort of like secure as sort of being the default. That's where we want to be. And then people will, to a degree, be more anxious or they'll be, to a degree, be more avoidant. And it's entirely possible, according to these models, to be, you know, somewhat high in both. But uh, it ends up being a continuum. And I would also hasten to add that um, researchers think of these things both in a general term. Uh, so like that there's a general way that you approach the world. People are trustworthy or people are not trustworthy. I need to be dramatic to get attention or I don't need to get dramatic to, be a, uh, to get attention. Um, that can be a general pattern, but there's also specific patterns as well. You can have a secure relationship with one parent, like your mother, and not have a secure relationship with your father. And this translates to other relationships too. And so you'll actually find, um, again, with so, sort of, for instance, a lot of uh, presidential scholars and things will look at, you know, uh, maybe the these leaders didn't have great relationships with their immediate parents, but they had an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent or someone like that who ended up giving them that, that, that love and that affection and letting them know that there's someone there for them. Um, but that's basically the three types, secure, anxious, and avoidant. So Peter, in, in thinking about these and, and thinking about, um, you know, sort of, I, I, what, the way I like to think about sort of basic human or basic infant or basic child needs, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, people raising children and parents, most kids, are, it seems like they really need two things that they need to know that there's somebody there, that, that somebody loves them, that they can, you know, they can count on somebody, which is very similar to what kind of what you said, but they also need some kind of a structure, right? Some predictability about things. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not sure to what degree Bowlby or Ainsworth really talked about that predictability component. It seems related to attachment styles as well, but I, but I'm not really sure if they're if they're different things, right? Is uh, is the this notion of of love having someone that that loves you and cares about you, um, this really differentiated in attachment theory from having predictability and stability. Yeah, I think the, that's, a, that's a really good point there because, I mean, a big part of that display of love is that you have to reliably be there. You have to be there when they need you, right? Um, but I think maybe what you're referring to is in developmental psychology world, they talk about authoritative parenting, which is like strict but loving. And I think that that's maybe a little something that, that Bowlby and even the attachment people have kind of missed as well, which is that it's not just about having the relationship. It's um, the element of predictability or reducing uncertainty in your environment. And, and, and Bowlby would have, I think, endorsed that where he's like, what you really want to do is not die um, when, you're, when you're an infant and you're vulnerable. So any environment that can kind of structure your environment into a safe way. And even if that 
means that your parents say that you have to be home by a certain time at night and there are consistent rules that you need to follow. Um, as long as they're sort of well-established and they're consistent, that's going to be a more positive uh, relationship. And But, you know, they also have to be communicated from the perspective of, I'm doing this because I'm concerned about you. I'm doing this because I want to protect you. It can't be, I think you're a terrible child and therefore I want to inhibit your freedoms. Well, that, yeah, that's an interesting point, Peter, because mostly what we've talked about so far is about infants and, and, and you know, maybe toddlers. But, you know, the example you gave there sort of suggests that these relationships keep developing and, and keep taking shape all the way even up through teenage years. I, is there is there research sort of consistent with that? Yeah. So, like, attachment styles are just like personality. They tend to be, you know, f- fairly stable, but they're not immutable. You can change them. And attachment researchers... Uh, this is kind of an unfortunate thing is, is that it, it's easier to ruin people than it is to build them back. Mm. And so you can take people and you can put them in environments and destroy their sense of trust uh, in their, their fellow man and, and other people, um, you know, by lying to them and cheating to them and tre- treating them badly and, and making them cynical. And, um, but it's harder to build that back up. Um, so it's, it's definitely, it's something that can change over your, your lifespan. And, um, you know, I think from a psychodynamic perspective, they would say what, what happens early on is, is sort of very, very foundational from an emotional perspective, but what happens later on as you sort of age into preteen, teen and adult is you're getting more of that sort of cognitive aspects of relationships really get shaped. Well, Peter, so Moving on to my next question, I mean, this is the Science of Personality podcast, so I'm, I'm curious about the links. So how are attachment styles related to personality? Uh, well, you see, a personality psychologist would come back at you and say, uh, it is personality, <laughs> so it doesn't need to be related to it. In fact, I think, you know, a lot of personality psychologists would say that attachment styles is, is really getting at the sort of the reptilian part of your brain, that it's the part that drives what uh, quite often person, you know, personality researchers actually end up doing. So the big five, so it becomes a driver of those. Uh, that said, you know, of course, lots of people have gone and, uh, and run studies sort of relating attachment styles to things like the big five. And uh, as you might expect, um, the anxiously attached individuals uh, who who are very easily stressed and hard to console, that, that does tend to result in really high levels of neuroticism in general, um, just patterns of, of being anxious and depressed and, and less trusting and things like that. But even the avoidant um, individuals, uh, that produces its sort of own big five pattern that has less to do with neuroticism. In fact, those people tend to be pretty dang emotionally stable um, to the extent that the, one of their goals seems to be to sort of shut down their emotions and shut down emotional displays. Um, but what goes along with that is that they tend to um, break rules. They tend to not like other people. And so they tend to be um, more introverted. They tend to be more disagreeable. They tend to be less conscientious. Um, and, you know, they, they want to be loners and and not part of, of the system. So, um you know, in terms of big five terms, that's where it fits in. With things like dark personality traits, you can also understand, especially with sort of the avoidant types, that, um, you know, certain things like uh, I think what Hogan Assessment uh, Systems calls like mischievous personality or sort of rule breaking and sort of the, the more uh, antisocial aspects would be associated with with avoidant, but not necessarily always there. It's just uh, that kind of goes into it. Um, but then other derailers that have to do with being overly dramatic and um, emotional and getting attention that way would certainly be associated with the anxious styles as well. Um, you can also, you know, probably guess that the re- the research generally shows that there are gender differences on these things, uh, on attachment styles, where whereby 
um, women are tend to display more often the anxious profile um, when they do have the insecure attachment, whereas men tend to, you know, again, shut down their emotions and distance themselves. So they tend to be higher on avoidance. Well, I think one of the interesting things here, Peter, is that, you know, and you, you sort of mentioned this earlier, that it's really about sort of secure versus insecure attachment styles, but there's basically two different uh, sort of ways of displaying an insecure attachment style. And you, you mentioned that anxious and avoidant, you, you can sort of be high on both. Uh, I don't actually know off the top of my head, what is the correlation between those two dimensions? Do you happen to know? I mean, theoretically, they're orthogonal with oh, each okay. other. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, okay. So uh, I guess p- part of the question, or at least one of the things that I would be wondering is, uh, so I realize that these are both from insecure attachments or, or uh, d- difficulty perhaps with, with parents. Um, but other than you, you mentioned this gender difference, which I I'm assume doesn't apply you know, broadly across the board, there's probably a trend, but it doesn't apply, apply sort of broadly to all women and all men. What might drive one to pick up more of an attach, uh, an anxious style versus an avoidance style, right? So we get that it's it's about some security issue, um, but what kinds of things, I mean, is there any research suggesting that this kind of thing would drive you to be more avoidant and this kind of thing would drive you to be more anxious? Or is it just seem to be you have bad parental care. And so you picked one. Well, so the the thing is, is I, you know, I, I guess you would almost put it on sort of a developmental continuum where, you know, people generally, they sort of start as secure. And then when they're, they're not getting, um, careful, attentive parenting, they move to uh, anxious where it's like, well, I, I'm going to make more noise. Hmm. Um, and it's, if even if that doesn't work, then they're like, oh, well, uh, to heck with this. Um, they're never coming. Right. And so they kind of learn it that way. Um, what do you actually get around to, and, you know, going back to personality, like the motivational framework here, and you can ask these people, what do they want? And what the anxious people really want is they want secure caregivers more than anything else. So like they mm-hmm. still want intimate relationships. They want affection from other people. They just have really um, dysfunctional ways of achieving that, you know, so you can think of the the very clingy boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's like, they're texting you and calling you all the time. And uh, did you cheat on me? And where are you going tonight? And something like this, where they're trying to get you to stay around, but it's, it's the type of behavior that ends up driving you away um, because it's just too much right? The avoidant people, if you ask them, they'll basically say, no, I I don't want that. I I don't want those close relationships. I don't need them. And so to some degree, it's almost like a a continuum. And so I think it it largely is sort of a product of of your experiences, but there there probably are genetic aspects to that where, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. your, your dispositions might push you towards one coping strategy or the other. So, so do you think the avoidant people really don't want that or is it that they, I, I guess I always interpret it as the avoidant people don't want to risk the emotional pain, the emotional hurt that might come with getting close to someone, right? People will betray you. People will leave you anyway. So I'm not going to get close to anyone so I can protect myself. That's the way I would, I always sort of saw it, that they actually at some deep level actually really wanted those relationships, but they're so mistrusting of them that they... Um, avoid them because they want to avoid the hurt, avoid the pain. Yeah. So I think, you know, as a psychologist, like, and and that was sort of a traditional take on it, which is that a lot of what you saw from the avoidant people was really sort of this surface level coldness, but like deep down, they still wanted those things. But um, people have done studies where they've used, you know, um, biological measures of distress and things like that. Right. And found that avoidant people can shut down their emotions and turn them off when they're mm-hmm. thinking about betrayal or, or other things that would sort of trigger attachment uh, styles more, um, that they seem to have developed sort of a capacity to distance themselves from their emotions. So um, they, they gen- genuinely do seem to sort of um, not 
feel the need for like intimacy and affection in the same way uh, that that other people do, and and to some degree, sort of you know, losing their their comfort level with that intimacy and relationship as well. So, Peter, do you see a tie here with you know, since you're our our person who came on to talk about the dark side, do you see correlations to um, this kind of shutting down and things, you know, with our HDS measure? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, it's all over the HDS uh, measure. In fact, you know, you can you can see certain uh, styles in there that definitely, you know, like I said, uh, you know, you've got sort of the, the histrionic people who are, you know, making a lot of noise and, and being dramatic. And then you've got um, people who shut down, like I think you call them, um, you know, the leisurely reserved. people, resistant to feedback, resentful, um, also like reserved, reserved yeah, would, aloof, yeah. detached would, would very much be the avoidant. Whereas, um, yeah, which one, uh, probably the colorful, I guess would probably be the closest to the anxious attachment. So it definitely overlaps with those quite a bit. Yeah. So you see a, a mix of the moving against and moving away derailers there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is a model Peter developed using children to understand child parent relationships, but you've suggested that attachment styles are applicable for adults in the workplace. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. For most of the time that people have studied attachment styles, they have, you know, just sort of looked at children and children parent relationships. And it really wasn't until probably about 30 years ago that um, some people started noticing that um, they started looking at romantic relationships and sort of seeing attachment type behaviors in adults. And so if you can think of um, what is the the most common word that's used in all love songs? Baby, 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 right? Um, we 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 use that as an affection, you know, an affectionate term for people we love. People will coo at their romantic partners. They'll stroke them. They'll hug them. They'll comfort them. Um, you know, and so they there were just a lot of parallels in terms of. Um, you know, making up nicknames for each other and even like raising the tone of your voice to tell, I love you. No, I love you. Uh, you know, um, being cutesy with each other, uh, public displays of affection. And these are things that we do with babies too. And they're like, well, like maybe we, we sort of, you know, we do this as adults too. And so there's been extensive research now on, um, dating couples and married couples and how they deal with each other. And it really sort of helps us understand, you know, what happens when an avoidant person is in a relationship with an anxious person or a secure person is with an avoidant person and, you know, how do they react to each other? And there've been really cool studies of things where, um, you know, they've looked at couples um, at airports and things like that, where they're separating and, um, you know, one person is getting on a flight and the other person's maybe dropping them off. And and when uh, the person dropping off is securely attached, what they'll do is, you know, it'll be a kiss and a hug and I'll see you soon in three days. And they sort of watch them for a few seconds, but then they sort of, you know, they walk away, they go back to their car and stuff like that. Uh, the anxious people, again, they're they're kind of clingy, right? So then there's a lot of like reaching and I love you and they want to stand in the TSA line and watch them and they'll wait at the airport and look for, you know, they'll phone them and like, which which plane's yours? When's it taking off? And, and they won't leave until they have to. And so there's a lot of this and the avoidant adults will just be like, well, have fun on your trip and leave immediately, <laughs> you know, no hugs, no kisses, no anything. So we see see adults doing this. Um, but you asked me about the workplace and um, that's where you, you see it as well, because, you know, uh, Freud, go going back again to the psychodynamic era, suggested that your leaders in organizations or, or in political situations were basically parents. They were just, again, projections and manifestations of, of parents. And so we're you know, I've been really interested in this stuff is um, the leader's uh, relationship with their followers. What do their followers need from their leaders? 
and um, do they get it back in terms of these attachment types? So we do see adults doing this. And we know, for instance, that one of the best predictors of whether you like your job is whether you've got a, a best friend at work. Uh, for instance. And so like relationships are, are really, really important. Um, and attachment styles is sort of the personality psychologist's best tool for understanding relationships. You know, Peter, I think you might have been at this, uh, that you're, you're mentioning of romantic relationships reminded me uh, this, was that an association for research for personality? I'm pretty sure it was at one of these conferences some years ago and uh, Jeff Simpson was talking, maybe, maybe it was an SPSP, but I think it was the ARP conference. And he was one of the keynote speakers, and he showed this video clip of he, he was he's a researcher at Minnesota who who's done a lot of work on sort of college age romantic attachment sort of um, relationships, uh, and uh, he had this video of this couple. Peter, do, do you remember what I'm talking about, Peter? I, I I know Jeff Simpson's work really well, but I don't think I was there for this. Okay, one. okay. So in this video, it was a couple, and it was just it was the person who scored the, the woman, and it happened to be in this particular couple. Uh, scored the highest uh, of anybody in their sample on an, on anxious attachment. And what they do with these these couples is they usually put them in a room and they say, "Okay, talk about t- just talk about the last time you had a fight." That's and that's what they that's the prompt. Um, and then they just video record the interaction. And it was just this amazing uh, example. I wish everybody could see it because it's just such a clear cut case of, wow, that's what anxious attachment really looks like, where the the, the issue was um, they were, uh, she had come to see him in a city, but she was in college in another city, uh, like four hours away. And she needed to get back because she had class the next day. She'd been struggling with her classes and she needed to get back. And, you know, so they were having this sort of debate about whether she wanted to go back or wanted to stay here with her boyfriend. She decided to go back. Okay. And she said, but look, I really need to study when I get back and I really don't have time to talk with you. Um, so, so you, you can't, you, you don't call me when I get there. I just need, I need to work. I need to get to work and get going. And he said, okay, okay. And then she was really mad at him after she got there that he didn't call her. And he, and you watch him talk about this in this interaction. He says, well, but you told me not to call you. And she says, but you should have known when I said I didn't want you to call me, that meant I wanted you to call me. And it's like, wow, like this is like really the epitome of this sort of anxious um, attachment style. And uh, it was just a really powerful example. And, and I just really, it really stands out to me as, as how, um, this kind of thinking can can shape the way we behave, and and of course, you know, these are college age students, so of course, this kind of thing can can affect us in, in the workplace as well. Okay, so Peter, I mean, I guess we've talked about you know, why I mean that attachment styles are applicable for adults in the workplace, but how are they related to actual workplace performance? Yeah, so I, I mean, there's not a ton of research on this. It tends to be a neglected area, but occasionally, you know, people wander into it and then they do studies. Um, Most of the studies I would say don't really do much with it in terms of like saying, Hey, here's what attachment theory is really good at studying. You know, they'll do just generally basic. Are these good workers or bad workers? And so you can kind of just get in general, the secure workers tend to, you know, have higher levels of performance in most jobs and they tend to be more satisfied. But um, you will find, for instance, that the, you know, the avoidant people do tend to engage in more counterproductive workplace behaviors. They're less likely to do citizenship behaviors or help out their coworkers because they just, they don't even really want to be there. They tend to be less engaged. Um, both the anxious and the avoidant types express lower levels of satisfaction with the work, probably the anxious people, because they're not getting the amount of, of affection and attention that they want. The avoidant people that just generally sort of grumbly, uh, in general, um, in both cases, they, they're not great always to have on teams. The anxious people, can be kind of disruptive and again, sort of clingy, uh, the avoidant people, they just don't like working on teams and that can be a problem in a lot of modern, uh, workplaces. Um, 
you know, we're starting to do some research on this with creativity now, uh, specifically because that was sort of an explorative outcome that Bowlby would have predicted. And what we're finding is, yeah, going those above and beyond um, that you do find them more with secure people. But what, what's interesting is um, <clears throat> it's not always just the workers that matter here. It really matters the context for the workers. So like if the anxious people, what we've been finding is if the anxious people are paired with secure leaders or leaders who are willing to give them the kind of attention that they're desiring, it doesn't trigger them. They seem to be able to sort of like sort of fully function um, like everyone else because they're not afraid of being betrayed or abandoned and things like that. And so um, again, this goes back to something we talked about earlier is it's, it's not necessarily that you're broken. It's, you know, it's a combination of factors. I think it's a vulnerability to, um, dysfunctional behaviors, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, a sentence that that's how things will be. Um, you know, that said, uh, within the leadership domain, of course, we find that the, the leaders who are securely attached, so they readily give um, uh, intimacy and affection and things like that to other people and receive it where they're very trusting and they can communicate that well, they do seem to be much more effective at leaders, particularly because they can help people overcome their own anxieties and biases and things like that. Yeah, well, I think uh, yeah, that that's really interesting, Peter. Thanks for sharing that, that, that information. Um, you know, I, I think the point about the interaction is really interesting, right? So you can imagine, you know, somebody who's sort of an anxious, you know, uh, sort of more, more concerned about relationships. Do people here like me? Do people want me to be here? And if you have sort of an avoidant boss or avoid, avoidant coworkers, right, that can be a real uh, a challenge, right? Because <laughs> that, that person's not giving you um, that uh, attention or, or at least showing any sort of uh, care or concern for your well-being, right? So, I mean, it's a little different when we think about child relationships with adult relationships, but I think there's a lot of parallels there. One of the, the parallels that I've been talking about recently with folks is, um, goes back to what I mentioned earlier with, with, with kids. We know that like, kids need, you know, the kids need a structured environment. They need to know like what's expected of them every day, what, you know, they, they want things to be predictable and to, and to know what's coming next. And they also need to know that somebody's there for them. Somebody cares about them. Somebody loves them. And I sometimes feel like that's a very similar. And I think that's what the whole idea of structure and consideration in the workplace was really about. It's about the idea that, you know, workers, what, what do most workers want? They want to know what's going to happen, what's, what's going to, they can be expected to do on a daily basis. And they want to know that somebody at the organization cares about them. And I think this is particularly true when we're talking about attachment styles for, for people who um, are anxious um, attached because not having that structure or not knowing that somebody there cares about you can, can really, um, can cause a lot of issues. Can feel like maybe I don't belong. Maybe this isn't the right place for me. Maybe nobody here uh, likes me. Maybe I should go find a different place to work. So uh, I mean, I don't know if you have any reactions to that. You know, you, you got me thinking about something, and this is just pure speculation right now. But uh, workplaces are going through what everyone's calling sort of the Great Resignation right, right. now, and uh, they're attributing that to a number of factors. But I, I can't help but wonder, in the context of attachment theory. If you've just spent two years alienating your workplaces right. by making them work remotely and separating them from each other and destroying those relationships and even having some organizations going, yeah, I don't really see the point in coming in anymore. You can all just work remotely. Why do we need to um, have close relationships anyways? It, it, everything's very transactional and treating people more like uh, parts of machinery than as as human beings that that need those social relationships, and you could see. Uh, and I don't think it would just be the anxious people. I think all all people, presumably maybe not the avoidant ones, but would react to workplaces that that way and say, "This place is not giving me what I psychologically need mm -hmm. um, by creating that distance, and I'm going to go to some place where I am appreciated." And I do get that kind of attention. Um, and so, again, you know, I have no evidence for that, but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all because it would perfectly fit with what attachment theory would predict. 
Well, I think that there is some evidence around some of these. It's been particularly true, I think, we've seen for um, people who aren't in relationships, right? So there's some evidence suggesting that younger people are are struggling more with the remote work situation than than older people. On on average, of course, not all young people or not all old people uh, are are successfully navigating it. But um, it does seem, but that, that, I think that's just a proxy for, you know, your own relationship status. It seems that people who are already in relationships, people who live in communities where they already have lots of those interpersonal relationships, right? They have people that they trust and they can trust them and that they, you know, ha- uh, feel good around and have positive interactions with, um, seem to be doing better with a remote work situation than people who, who don't have as much, right? If you're young, if you're fresh out of college, if you've moved to a new city, you don't have people there that, you know, um, it, if you're single, um, not having a workplace to to build those relationships, not having a place where where you can um, um, you know, find those secu- secure people to attach with, uh, I think is a real struggle. And so I think that it, that is absolutely right. That there's it certainly for for some individuals that's driving driving part of it. Well, okay, well. What about leadership, Peter? Uh, you know, Hogan, we talk a lot about leadership emergence versus leadership effectiveness. So I guess for my next question, can you talk about the attachment styles associated with emergent leaders and effective leaders? Yeah. So, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, the followers and how they react to leaders and in fact, how, you know, secure leaders tend to do to do best. Um we do find when we talk about sort of leader emergence that, you know, uh, the secure and the avoidant individuals tend to be more likely to be promoted. Again, I think because uh, workplaces tend to um, reward you for, um, you know, more your task type per- performance rather than your, you know, social emotional performance in the workplace. Uh, so the avoidant people quite often can find, um that they're actually, you know, especially in highly, highly masculine environments, you can think of like the, the bro companies like Uber and stuff like that was probably uh, a great place to be an avoidant. Uh, but, but also I think historically ma- masculine cultures too, right? Like construction, firefighting, uh, police work, right? That being, you know, sort of cold, tough, yeah. unemotional. I think th- those kinds of things are, are probably rewarded there. Would you agree? I, I think so. I mean, where I've seen evidence of it is in manufacturing samples where mm-hmm. actually um, they basically say that that's the most functional type of leadership style is actually avoidant in those contexts where it's about being tough and being unemotional. Um, so, you know, it does come up, you know, that said from a, a leadership um perspective in terms of like what you're good at and what you're bad at, you know, we, we know that like, there's sort of initiating structure and showing consideration are sort of the two big things that we expect leaders to do. And you can kind of see how like avoiding people might be just fine and dandy with the initiating structure parts, but they fail to show the consideration as a consequence of that. They might have less satisfaction, less team cohesion and things like that. Uh, the anxious leaders um, might you know, they might have some of that emotional stuff there. They're, you know, certainly want to have, you know, the parties and the recognitions and things like that. But where we find them struggling a lot of times is that they have a lot of trouble with like discipline and directive functions of leadership because they're really worried about driving their followers away. So if you remember like in um, the TV show, The Office, um, I was just Scott thinking of that. Is, he's a great example. <laughs> a, an anxiously attached you know, leader where they did a lot of sort of throwbacks to his childhood where, you know, he was not being loved, but like he desperately, desperately wanted to be loved by his workers. And that he had all those world's best boss mugs, right. That he bought for himself. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, like that, that was what he lived for. And so you can see like how those people would be very sincere. And I think if you, you know, you understood what was going through them, they become very sympathetic characters yet at the same time, uh, going to that show, like you get an avoidant individual like Stanley who just finds Michael to be irritating. 
um, all the time where it's just like, leave me alone. Um, you know, I don't want to do all your exercises and your activities and your team building things. Um, and so the, the anxious people, and they, they do have trouble um, saying no and, and, and disciplining and things like that. So that, that's kind of where, where these sort of manifest themselves. Yeah, it, it also reminds me of the episode where uh, Jim organizes a party at his house, but Michael's not invited. But Michael, I think, has been sur- uh, doing surveillance on on the company emails in that episode and finds out that the party's happening and that he's not been invited and that drives him crazy. Right. Well, but but that you know, to Peter's point earlier, that's exactly the kind of thing sort of an anxious person right in this in this sort of attachment framework would do right you know peter used the example earlier I, I, give me your cell phone i want to read your text messages right um th- that kind of thing uh just being concerned that that you know um yeah that that somebody is is cheating on you in some way and in this in this context is the same it, it, you know it, it's it's not cheating romantically right but it's 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 cheating in a in a relationship friendship kind of context well, you know, and more broadly, um, within like the CEO research literature, you find out like being a CEO and I think being a leader in general is it's a lonely role, you know, because you don't know when your followers are being kind to you. Are they doing that because of the power in the relationship? Can you trust them? You know, who can you share with? And so it's a really stressful thing for an anxiously um, attached individual to be in a leadership position. Well, Peter, this, I mean, this conversation has been, been great, but, um, I have one last question before we, we end this episode and and it, you know, it seems obvious that attachment styles play a significant role when it comes to organizational performance. So in your opinion, what work still needs to be done on the research front moving forward? Uh, well, from a research perspective and as an organizational uh, psychologist, I think that the, the things that I look at is, you know, we, we study attachment in the workplace and we think that it's important. We've shown that it's important, but we only ever are able to really do that from sort of an academic perspective. Um, there really aren't measures that are designed to assess attachment styles in uh, training or selection settings and things like that. One of the only exceptions is the the Hogan personality inventory. And within the adjustment dimension, there is a sub-dimension of that called good attachment, which is based on attachment styles, but it doesn't differentiate between anxious and avoidant attachment. And so, um, you know, it gets you halfway there, but, but not quite all the way there. Uh, with what right, you it's more do. about just secure versus insecure. S- secure yeah. versus insecure, yeah. And um, then the other thing is, is like, so we don't have good measures. We definitely need those, and then uh, we need we need training. Because one thing I when I talk about this with people, um, and quite often, again, a lot of leaders uh, tend to actually be avoidantly attached, and they'll you know they'll be like, hey, um, you know, just a point of self realization here is like. I'm not good at this. I don't like intimacy. I don't like that. And you're telling me I need to do that. And I think that this gets into, you know, we talk about humility and leadership a lot of times is like leaders don't need to be, you know, supermen. They don't have to do everything themselves. And one thing I sort of advise them to do is like, if you can't be that person, make sure that there's someone in your organization, like your number two or someone else who is that counselor? Who is that shoulder to cry on? Is someone that people can go to? Um, like that's the way that you can show um, that you care. Is like even if you can't necessarily be there for people, like you can create the context again where the organization is caring, so that people have that secure base in the workplace. And so, um, training, job structuring, those are things that we really need to sort of focus on as well in terms of, um, research. Well, I think that's a really good point, Peter. And, and to that last point you made there, that that's really all about what, what, what strategic self-awareness is all about, right? It's not about, oh, okay, th- these are your sort of blind spots. These are areas where you need to work on. 
um, sure, maybe you can improve in those areas in some ways. But in many cases, we, we actually advise leaders to find people who can fill those gaps. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and we've talked on, I think, on this podcast about how entrepreneurs typically need help with structure. Um, they, they need help with, with uh, running an, an operationally efficient organization. And we talk to them a lot about getting somebody who can help you do that kind of thing, help you can rein in those ideas and really put them into practice. Um, and it's, I think it's the same, same idea here is that, you know, finding someone who can fill those gaps, uh, is really critical for organizational success. Well, Peter, um, it's, it's been great talking to you again. Uh, I know we'll have you back on the podcast in the future, but again, thank you so much for, for coming on and joining us for this episode. Yeah. Um, you know, do you mind if I just sort of share a few additional thoughts? No, absolutely. Go yeah, for it. Well, Peter, I was going to ask, um, if you don't mind, uh, actually sort of, you know, I think a lot of people can look at attachment theory and go, well, isn't that pretty narrow? Like what's the, what's sort of the big idea or what's the big implication behind attachment theory? And I don't know if this is where you were going to go, but, um, you know, I'm kind of curious, like wh why would individuals in the workplace or organizations really care at a sort of broad level about it? Yeah. So, I mean, generally as, you know, organizational researchers, we look at this at sort of the micro level, which is, you know, the individual level, how does this affect individuals? But like it has societal implications as well. Um, when we first started studying attachment styles, we found that over 60% of people were securely attached and you had about a 20, 20 split of the anxious and the avoidant people. And that was pretty stable for a long time. Um, but more recent surveys have shown that with the millennials and the generation uh, Z folks or generation zoom, um, that in fact, the rates of secure attachment have fallen to below 40%. And they've almost been entirely replaced by avoidance. So now you have about 40% mm. secure, 40% avoidance, and 20% anxious. And that's going to have implications in the workplace in general. It's going to have implications for society and how we relate to each other. Um, because, you're, again, you're getting that greater and greater you know, sort of distance where people are saying, like, I don't need to be in these you know, tight relationships with other people. And there's lots of reasons why people think that this, this trend may have happened, whether that's, you know, um, breakdown of families that were not connected with their extended family as much. People have blamed uh, social media for sort of trivializing relationships where it's just, you know, likes and follows and things like that. Um, people have said, you know, before there generally was like sort of one working parent and one non-working parent, you generally found that the people would have a more secure relationship with the non-working uh, parent. And now, you know, we just, there's not sort of a designated person to have that relationship with. Um, so there's these sort of macro trends that, that we're not sure we know how to deal with yet and, and haven't manifest. And, I have to imagine that something like the COVID pandemic and, you know, doing all your meetings again over Zoom and the distance and things like that. Think about what that means for organizations where you're onboarding new people. They don't know their coworkers. I know tons and tons of people who were employed for the first time, my former students, who have never met their boss or their coworkers <laughs> face to face ever. How do they have a relationship with those people? I mean, it all ends up being very transactional. And again, as humans, we desire that level of sort of intimacy and, and relatedness. And that's been stripped from them and stripped from the workplace. And so I think, you know, we, we often talk about what has happened and the changes in the workplace through very technical and very transactional terms. But we have really ignored what the implications are in human terms. And I think that that's why it's important to pay attention to things like attachment styles. Um, the other point I think I'd like to make, again, is just to reiterate, you know, these insecure attachment types don't necessarily mean you're broken. They're not immutable. They can change. And it's, you know, it's how you react to them. Um, you know, I, I keep mentioning presidents like President Obama is a great example. 
of someone who, uh, you know, when they asked him to write the biography of his life, he wrote uh, the book Dreams from My Father. Well, that father abandoned him when he Mm -hmm. was an infant, and he only met him once later on in his life. And yet he still built up his father as this amazing guy that he wanted to be like. And it, it, from an attachment perspective, it's this really strange thing because he did have these figures like his grandmother who really genuinely seemed to like care and love him. And instead he still oriented himself around his father. And that became sort of a linchpin for, you know, his character development and his ambitions and what he wanted to do. Um, and how he saw himself in the world and sort of even his personal identity. Uh, so like this stuff is really real and it's really impactful and like it impacts people who make big decisions for us too. Uh, so like this is, I, I love doing this stuff because like this, this is sort of like the psychologist's playground where it's something very, very psychological, very psychodynamic. It really puts us back to, you know, Freud and childhood and, trauma and neuroses and all these things, but it has these really impactful, important things that happen in the real world. And, and just the translation between those is just, it's so much, so fun, so amazing. And like, uh, it's one of my favorite topics. So thank you for bringing me on to talk about it. Well, it's so important too, right? I mean, you mentioned that, but I mean, this, these are people who lead <laughs> huge organizations or in some cases, uh, entire nations uh, and, and, you know, things from when they were children uh, seem to be affecting them, which affects all of us. So it, it's really good to know. So uh, I just want to say thanks so much, Peter, for coming on today. This was awesome. A really deep dive into a topic that I think a lot of our listeners may not know as much about. So I really appreciate your expertise and sharing that with us today. Great. I had a lot of fun and I hope people find it interesting. Um, again, you know, some of this work is hard to find, but it's definitely out there and it's, it's certainly growing at a very rapid pace. People are getting excited about it. Well, Peter, thank you. And uh, I, I know I told the listeners earlier that we will be bringing you back on. And yeah, I think we actually have uh, a topic in mind. I won't spoil that, but, um, but yes, you'll definitely be joining us again in the future. Uh, our listeners seem to have liked your first episode. I think they're going to love this one and, uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And, uh, hello listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and that does it for the science of personality podcast, episode 54. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.